Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. September 2nd, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome to everyone over here in the Blog Talk radio chat room. I see a lot of the familiar faces. Of course, right at the beginning of the show is the time where many people who are listening live end up having to refresh in order to get the sound. So I see some people who uh, had to leave and come back, et cetera. Just Jean, John Roberts, Herman, Roger, Sally, Selfishness, Chris, Jay, others are filing in as we speak. There's a number of guests there, of course, as well. Welcome, everyone. If you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, not only do you get to see the program notes, you get to see the new look at the blog over there. I get to thank Glenn Jameson of Moonshine Films for giving everything a redesign. And this is coinciding with moving the show to terrestrial radio, which is an exciting development that I've been talking about here in the last couple weeks or so. So it's nice to give a little bit of a a redesign to to coincide with that. So check it out. Don'tletitgo.com. Let me know what you think. I've got a custom-sized banner for the blog now. I've got a custom-sized banner for the Facebook page, the Don't Let It Go Unheard Facebook page. And the first thing that he worked on was a badge because a badge is going to be used either by the terrestrial radio stations themselves or by High Road Producers, the production company that is rolling the show out on these terrestrial stations. So go check it out. Let me know what you think. So far, people have enjoyed it. I'm not going to give you any spoilers. I want you to see it for yourself and and, uh, see what you think of it. Now I'm seeing here in the chat room, oh yeah, people finally having sound. Yeah, happy Atlas Day. Today is, it happens to be Atlas Shrugged Day on September 2nd that this show falls on. So we will have, you know, kind of in the background while we're looking at things today, you know, does life continue 
to imitate the pages of Atlas Shrugged and not only just imitate, but I would say that some of the things that are going on in the news today are far beyond, far worse than anything Ayn Rand would have imagined and, and put into the pages of Atlas Shrugged. <sighs> Jay says, imagine starting a project today and finishing it 12 years from now. Or do you remember what you were doing 12 years ago? I mean, 12 years ago, I did not have a show. I've been doing this show for a bit over five years. So didn't even have that in my mind. Yeah, I remember what I was doing 12 years ago. I'm thinking 12 years ago. I was doing a lot of dog agility. I'm definitely doing a lot of that. Living in Colorado, teaching at the Air Force Academy. A lot of changes. A lot of changes since then. So, um, yeah. To, to think of, you know, that long term of a project over 12 years. I know some people who would get their PhDs and it would take them 12 years. Thankfully, mine did not take that long. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the stamina that she showed to, you know, not, not to mention the, the product, the end result, the brilliance of that end result is amazing. So, yes, that will be in the background for us to think about, you know, when you go through some of the the news items, the fact that we have a, I think, still leading candidate for president who, by all accounts, based on the news stories that come out every single day, is so incredibly corrupt and has been so careless with the data that, you know, is protecting the lives of American citizens and people working in the government to protect us. It really is mind-boggling, and I don't know that Rand would have even imagined that somebody that blatantly corrupt and that blatant about the mishandling and the lying about the mishandling of the information would be the leading candidate for president in 2016. I'm not sure that that would have uh, even occurred to her. We do have another jobs report. I can't believe it. it seems like yesterday that we had you know, these are monthly, these jobs reports. So I guess what, once every four or five weeks or so, I should just expect it. But yet we have another jobs report. And where do you go to get an accurate view of the jobs report? I go to CNS News now. I just end up going straight there. Because if you look at any of the mainstream media news sources, they try to tell you, oh, look, you know, so many jobs were created and the unemployment rate is either better or it's not bad or anything else, only when you go to CNS do they come out right away with how many people are not in the labor force, what is the labor force participation rate. And again, the labor force participation rate is stuck at 62.8%. That's exactly where it was in July. So if somebody is trying to tell you that, Somehow we should be optimistic about whatever's coming out with the jobs report. That is just not true. Um, in one year ago, says CNS, in September 2015, the labor force participation rate dropped to 62.4%, which was its lowest point since 1977. The best that it's been since Barack Obama took office was 65.8% in February 2009, which is just the month after Obama was sworn in. So um, imagine the labor force participation rate has been worse than when Obama was sworn in for the entire tenure of his presidency. That is, I I would say, a, a, a pretty damning thing. And for him to go around patting himself on the back for saving us from 
the recession and all of that stuff. BLS Bureau of Labor Statistics said the economy added 151,000 jobs in August, which is not as much as analysts expected. They have this weird thing about how many they expect, and then when there's less, then that's somehow bad. But if it's more than they expected, even if they expected something not so good, then somehow everybody gets excited. The unemployment rate held steady at 4.9%, but the number of unemployed persons increased, is that right? Yeah, it it increased by 79,000 unemployed persons. So the rate is somehow the same. Maybe that is because of some of the people dropping out entirely and not being accounted for in the rate. Because we do know that that rate, the unemployment rate is baked to a certain extent. So yeah, go to cnsnews.com whenever there's a jobs report if you want to get the straight scoop. Sometimes you don't even get it if you look at Wall Street Journal or um, you know, New York Times and all those sorts of things. So, um, okay. I'm going to have to close my Facebook window because somebody added me to a message group. That's what I, I need. I need to be pinged by a message group during the course of our show. I think I will be shutting that out. So, you know, here we are in a, a terrible, terrible, terrible economy. And what do we have as our two basic alternatives this election cycle, we have Trump and we have Clinton. And this week, Trump gave his speech on immigration. Immigration is one of the basic prongs of his platform. It's one of the main things that people, you know, that he's promised everyone that he's going to make America great in large part due to his immigration policy. So we do want to go through that. It was funny. I said, oh, I'm going to have to watch this speech. I ended up not watching it. I again, went for the transcript. Thanks to New York Times for actually producing a transcript. Of course, the transcript meant that I got all of his little asides and meaningless whatever, but it's pretty easy to skim through. Not a big deal. So I'm going to go ahead and and walk you through the 10 item plan, you know, that he laid out during that speech and see what you think. Uh, My voice still may be a little bit bad. I'm still kind of recovering. I ended up with a full-blown sinus infection, but I'm significantly better now. You still may hear a little residue of that, so I apologize if you end up hearing something that's not so good. Uh, just Jean in the chat room says, Hillary Clinton's data carelessness is inexcusable. We are going to talk about the new breaking news on that front. The FBI has released a heavily redacted summary of its investigation of Clinton. And so we'll take a peek at some of the stuff about that. But keep in mind, they just released it a couple hours ago. So I've only been able just to look at a little bit of it. And I can't, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of things in there that are going to come out in the next few days. The other thing you need to keep in mind is that it is heavily redacted. There's huge white blocks in it. If you're you're actually going over to Fox News, Fox News.com, has the documents. I have a link at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. So we will look at that. But let's let's talk about this immigration speech. And by the way, people keep saying that they don't understand exactly what my position is on immigration. Uh, Someone on a blog was saying something like mental gymnastics and this and that. Um, What is my policy on immigration? Do I believe in purely open borders. I do not. Uh, 
on my, and I'm going to just, I mean, I think it's pretty simple, right? I believe in applying the central principle in foreign policy, which is if there is a threat to the American people, an actual threat to the American people, which there is right now, right? There is within Islam a substantial faction of people who want to do us harm. And it can be difficult to figure out who within certain countries in particular wants to do that. So what principle do we apply? We apply the principle that if we are at a time of war, that we are entitled to do whatever is necessary to eliminate the risk to American people with minimal loss of life on our side. And as your own Brooke and you, you know, Lon Journal and other people have discussed in their writings and in talks and everything else, this will sometimes include civilian casualties, right? Um, if you are conducting a war of self-defense, you will sometimes need to bomb your enemy. And sometimes those bombs are going to hit civilians. It's not like you're going to delivery, you know, deliberately target civilians unless that's necessary to eliminate the threat against you. Often it won't. But there will be times where there are innocent people in another country, people who are actually sympathetic with you, who will be killed by these bombs. Okay, so th this is tragic, but it's if you're you know conducting a proper war of self-defense, it's unavoidable. Similarly, we need to, for example, keep ISIS members out of our country, and we're entitled to keep ISIS members out of our country. We don't need to allow them across the border, have some open border. What do we need to do to keep ISIS members out of the country? We need to at least be able to screen properly people who are going to come in. There are many places around the world where we will not adequately be able to screen the people who are coming through. Uh, there are places around the world where we have evidence that ISIS members are going there as a way station to try to immigrate or come in here through a visa or whatever. And so that, you know, when, when you have substantial evidence that people are using certain pathways to get to your country and you're not adequately able to screen, uh, people come up to you with a document and you can't really tell if it's forged and there's a substantial risk of that person. If you're in a time of war, you can keep these people out. And, um, you know, I, th I do think we should restrict Muslim immigration because there are a substantial number, too many uh, Muslims who would pose us harm, that would pose us a risk. Now, then the question is, you know, where do you draw the line? Some people I've heard say, you know, we're going to have absolutely no Muslims come into our country. And I don't know that that would be necessary to eliminate the risk to the United States talk to me about it. Let's talk about the application to the actual facts. I don't know that you would need to eliminate from immigrating or coming into our country, visiting our country, every single person who identifies themselves as a Muslim, because there's so many people who they don't take their own religion seriously, just like in other religions, right? Um, but the principle is, what is necessary to eliminate the risk uh, with minimal loss of life on our side during a time of war. We do not need to sacrifice ourselves in terms of foreign policy or immigration policy, neither of these. And immigration policy, I would say, is part of foreign policy. You keep, you're entitled to keep the enemy out. And it is difficult today to figure out who the enemy is. So 
we could talk about the application to particular regions and places and stuff. You know, Trump talks about it in his speech. But, you know, the principle is if keeping these people out is necessary to eliminate this risk with minimal loss of life on our side, uh, given the statistics about the certain place and everything else, we'd say, okay, during a time of war, we're entitled to do this. Some people will say, well, the war will never end until Islam is completely wiped out. That means what? You're going to wait until there's not one person in the world that calls themselves a Muslim, and otherwise it's always a time of war, and then you're always going to exclude every single Muslim? I'm not going to sign on to that. I don't believe that that's necessary. Now, you know, again, we could have that argument. We could try to apply the principle to the facts of the situation. But insofar as you are not adequately able to screen such that you could ensure that you know, sometimes you might still make a mistake, right? You screen and you think, okay, well, people coming in from X country are safe. You know, we don't have any particular evidence that ISIS members are going through that country to come in the United States. So we let people in and then suddenly there is, right? But even if you did that, right, even if it wasn't perfect, you would still let in so few that you wouldn't overwhelm the resources of law enforcement here in the United States, right? Because that, you know, when they come in is not the end of the story. We also have FBI and other law enforcement able to investigate right now, because of the irresponsible policy of Barack Obama, our law enforcement here in the United States is overwhelmed and they cannot possibly do their job to defend us properly. So, um, you know, you have to, screen and screen effectively, but I don't know that you need to keep 100% of all Muslim population out. I don't think that that's what Donald Trump is even talking about doing, those of you who are in favor of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, so again, I think my policy is very simple. I am not for open borders. I am, and this is what most people are, are concerned about, is the keeping out of, of Muslims. I am for restricting Muslim immigration when, you know, you look at certain regions and you are not able to effectively screen out ISIS members and other, you know, would-be terrorists from the others. And you can say, look, you know, we're at a time of war. We need to preserve ourselves. If we just let everybody in, then we're going to overwhelm our law enforcement here. And, and we don't need to say, okay, well, we don't know whether you're an ISIS member, but we'll just let you in and then see if you go blow yourself up or something. This is, we don't have a duty to do this when we're at a time of war, right? These people do want to harm the American people, and, and it is the job of the government to protect us. Um, where I disagree with many of the anti open borders people is that we need to keep people out because they have low IQs or because they're going to compete for jobs or their culture is inferior to ours otherwise or whatever it is. Um, no, we keep people out when they pose a risk to us. Uh, we don't need to subsidize their coming in either. And that's another point, right? You know, right now we have a government that is subsidizing the bringing in of dangerous refugee populations. That is insane. And of course, I'm against that. But, you know, if you go out there and you say, well, Amy Peikoff is not for, you know, keeping every single Muslim out with immigration. So therefore, she must be for bringing in all these refugees and in fact, having government subsidize it. Not at all. So I think I've been clear. 
but everyone says, oh, no, you know, what was one term I saw recently thrown around? Lettuce? I don't even know. It's, it's uh, crazy stuff. I do have a caller. I'm going to go ahead and grab the caller before I go through the 10 points of Trump's immigration speech. Hi, who's this? Hey, Amy. This is Ed. Hey, Ed, how are you? I'm doing fine. Good, good. So was was I clear? I, um, was I clear enough? Was I clear enough about what my policy is? No, uh, no. I think, I, I, and I think I, I can kind of explain, kind of, you know, our position, uh, in the sense of, uh, you know, why we think that you, but not just you, but especially your own, completely incoherent on this issue, and and that is that, um, when confronted with a potential immigrant. Mm-hmm. Where is the burden of proof? And what what does either the United States or the immigrant have to prove? Our position is that the burden of proof is on the immigrant to show that Mm -hmm. he will be, he or she will be an asset and not a threat to the United States. Okay, okay, so. Your own, um, your own. No, no, listen, no, but listen, listen, listen. No, does, does that apply? Does that apply? Wait, 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 wait one second. Wait one second. I'm, I'm going to follow up. Um, does okay. that, does that apply only to Muslims or to everybody? No, everybody. More, more Americans are killed by Mexican drug gangs than they are from, uh, uh, Muslim terrorists. I don't know why you would restrict it to, uh, I don't, I don't well, I mean, no, no, the, a, a, similar, a similar principle would apply. So, yeah, if you say, okay, you know, we have a substantial population from Mexico, then, yeah, you've, you've got to do the screening, and, and you have to say, okay, and then we sift these people out, and they're not connected to the drug gangs. Sure, no problem. I think, I think, um, we, all, I think we all agree on individualized screening, that is, treating people as individuals rather than as simply members of groups. I, I, there, I don't think there's any objectivist in the world, certainly not me, who believes we should just exclude people because they are a member of a group. That that would be crazy, and I would never be in favor of that. But okay, well, some people, we some people are. Some people are saying any Muslim, any person who well, is I, a Muslim, then you would just I un- totally keep them I out. Hersi Ali is, I Hersi Ali is a Muslim, uh, according to other Muslims, because apostasy is not allowed. But I would obviously allow her into the country. But right. the idea is individualized screening and the burden of proof on the immigrant. And I think that, um, you know, again, Trump, Trump is nuts, right? But I, I think that, you know, he and Ed Maslish and I agree that one of the aspects of showing that you're going to be a benefit to the United States is are you – Pro-American. Okay, but you know that that and that and they did. That was one of the things that he mentioned. He actually mentioned ideological screening in his speech, and you know for the reason for the for the reasons I talked about on my blog post, I disagree with an ideological screening. Let me ask you this question, okay? Let me ask you this Mm -hmm. question, Ed. Kids, you know, kids, they just go through these really uh-huh. crazy periods, right? You know, when, when, they're, when they're teenagers, they know everything, their parents are ignorant, right? Um, how right. long do you give them, how long do you give them to figure out that they're pro-American before you kick them out if they're born here? I never said kick anybody who was born here. I know, out. but what, if, if, you, if you're screening based on ideological grounds, how is it that 
suddenly somebody who was born here is better than somebody out there. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the person out there is actually going to be better on average for the country on the balance than the kid, you know, who's born here and becomes like a socialist or whatever, right? Well, I mean, we're a nation of law. So the, the law is that if you're born here, you're in America. Okay, so why, why are and we so, a nation of laws? Why are we a nation of laws? The reason why we're a nation of laws is we started that way, and we have not yet imported enough people from lawless countries to okay, turn no, 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 no. But why, why, okay, how about, I, I, let me rephrase the question. Why, <laughs> why, 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 do we, why do we want a nation of laws? Why do we want an, a, a nation of laws? In, in general, to protect the rights of our citizens. In general. Okay, but not, not to protect the rights of our citizens, but just in general to protect the rights of our citizens? To protect rights as a principle or not? Because this in general sounds a little weaselly. Most of the laws in the United States today do not okay, okay. protect Okay, okay. Yeah, but, that, but that's why we want it, right? We want it to protect the rights of citizens. Not America. we want it because we want to protect them in general, but maybe sometimes we're not going to protect rights, you know? I, I, the I goal just of like, the American do, do you, government do you, is to protect you, the rights a, of America. Do, do you have a right to be wrong or you don't? Do, do I have a right? To, uh, yes, I'm wrong twice a day and three times on Sunday. So I, I, I definitely have a right to be wrong. I mean, a lot of people think I'm but, wrong. I've been, I've been subjected to the most vicious abuse online over the last week. Uh, I can't even tell you. Really? Where? Because I haven't seen any. Uh, yeah, I, I can get, give you. It, it's okay, been, it's right. been taken. It's been taken down. But I can tell you at another time. Point point being, you know, they think I'm wrong or whatever. Maybe they want to kick me out of the country. You know. Um, no, nobody wants uh, to kick Americans out. I, I think pe- people people have people have a right to be wrong. And and you know when when you're talking about when you're talking about what a government can do. Right. When you're talking about actual government taking actions like so, for example, you know, somebody has been hired for a job here in the United States. Right. This is the premise. Somebody has been hired for a job here in the United States and um, the government is going to keep that person out for some reason. Now, do you want the reason that the government keeps the person out to be based solely on ideas in their head or do you want there to actually be? concrete actions in, you know, furtherance or not even in furtherance, but consistent with ideas that promote rights violations, for example. You know, my my point is, is that when government acts, when government acts, it needs needs to use force only, you know, again, in retaliation and against those who initiate its use. Obviously, there can be preemptive use of force when you've got an imminent threat, right? But it's got to, it's got to be a threat of physical action, not just a threat of people walking with ideas around in their mind. Keeping potential immigrants out of the country is not an exercise in the use of force any more than you locking your door in your home is an exercise in the use of force uh, to anybody who wants to come in and look at your home. It's just, well, but the point is, is that, again, you know, the, the premise is that there's somebody here in this country who wants to rent a house to this person, who wants to hire this person, and you, you know, or not you, but you, what you're doing is you're in favor of our government preventing that interaction from taking place. Um, 
I, I said individualized screening based on the principle that the individual is going to be an asset to the United States. Having a job is certainly a good indication that this person is going to, you know, having a job already lined up is certainly a right, good Right, but I mean, what, suppose, not, suppose ideologically, ideologically that person just doesn't stack up. Trump and you and Ed would keep him out, right? Absolutely. If, 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 if basically they're going to cut, and, and that's because the United States, as much as we don't want it to be, we don't want the United States to be a democracy. We want it to be a rights-respecting republic. But it is a democracy. And I, you know, I don't like that. So you basically, like that basically preserve, it, preserve it at the cost of violating individual rights. Uh, some people's rights are better no, than there's others. There's no rights being violated. There's no rights being violated. The, uh, foreigners do not have a right to come here, period. Okay, so if I live here and I have a business here and I have a house here or whatever, I am not entitled to invite people over here if they have the wrong ideas. You are entitled to invite them. They are not entitled to come. Unless yeah. So, and that's and that's because you and Ed, you an you and Ed, and whoever else have decided that certain ideas aren't acceptable among my house guests. Is that it? Ideas. Systems of. Systems I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking about yes. ideas apart from proof of acting on any, you know, violent promoting ideas. Again, you know, if you've got proof that. A person no, has no, no. You're, supported, you're, you know, an organization, everything else. Pushing, you and I are in agreement. But I'm talking about merely holding ideas in your head without acting on them, you know, you're, before you can, improve, you know, prove some sort of again uh, overt you're act. Putting the burden of proof on the government. I am putting the burden of proof on the individual. The individual immigrant has the burden of proof to show that they are going to be a productive and nonviolent member of the American society. You are saying, oh, I have to have, I, the government, the government has to have evidence that this person is not going to be a criminal or a terrorist or a, or a member of a gang or whatnot. And, of course, that is an impossible standard to meet because the government is incapable of producing that except for, like, you know, yes, we won't let in Ayman al-Zawahiri, but pretty much everybody else, the government has no data. So I, I, I just say reverse the burden of proof. You want to invite someone to come in, and they can prove. Well, that they okay. Are. What? What? And 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 where I would where I would disagree is I'd say okay. Look, in a in a time of war, the I mean I I would say okay in a time of war with respect to certain subpopulations around the world, I would, uh, you know, be with you in putting the burden of proof on the people, or even with respect to certain subpopulations, keeping them out entirely during a time of war. You know, the other, the other prong of the argument is to talk about, uh, you know, does the war ever end unless Islam is completely, quote, wiped off the earth or whatever. That's how some people put it. And I, I don't believe that. I don't believe, you know, I think that the, the war could be, you know, just for a certain limited period. And then we could continually reevaluate which regions of the world. So I would only shift that burden of proof with respect to certain populations and certain time periods where you need to okay. in order to, I mean, I, to eliminate a threat. I think that's, I think that's a respectable uh, point of view, and I think that's a, a basis of discussion. I think that the United States has not been at war 
less than 10 out of the 240 years of its existence. So I think. Okay, so then, I, so then, you, then I, basically I, I, the the place where you're at war is kind of always shifting and stuff. And yeah, we could talk about, you know, certain areas of Mexico. There's this cartel risk, or you know, we could discuss these various applications of of what I'm talking about. But right. I don't think you can have for every single immigrant coming in all the time burden of proof on them. I think you need to actually show a risk. You know, this is a this is a government. This is not a private owner of the entire United States. If it was a private owner of the entire United States, of course, no problem, right? Well, there is essentially no difference between uh, there is essentially no difference between if, if one person came and and you know created the United States and set up a uh, homeowners association with these rules and the government does it. It's, it's essentially the same thing. Um, mm, I, I would, I would States, disagree United with States. that because a pri- a private owner can dictate everything that happens on their property. Right? No, of course they can't. Of course they can't. The private owner most certainly cannot dictate. Well, I mean, with, you know, within certain bounds, right? They could say who can come on and who can come off their land all the time. And they can say, yeah, you can come on, but only for a certain you know, causes and yeah, stuff. I mean, our, like, our, our government, our government is yard, not there to say what can be done on property in, in our country as long as we don't violate the rights of other people. But, you know, you're, when you're talking about ideological screening, you're talking about ideas in their head. And, you know, Trump, when I was looking through his speech and I was looking at the language that he's using, he's talking about people who will, you know, benefit United States as a whole. And, you know, maybe there's some people that Apple wants to hire and Trump's going to say, no, you know, those people don't benefit United States as a whole. There's a whole bunch of workers that are going to get mad if we let this person in or whatever it is. And, yeah, it, w- it would tremendously benefit Apple. It would tremendously, tremendously benefit me because I love my Apple products. I really admire what Apple is doing. They're standing up against the EU this week. It's beautiful. Um, but, no, you know, uh, Trump says, no. Nah. Hiring these people, bringing them in, won't benefit the workers, the United States as a whole. You know, that's the, the standard. And uh, it, it's 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 yeah, not I like mean, the general welfare clause, you know, where all this horrible stuff was done in the in the Constitution, right? I, well, I'm you know, I, obviously the general welfare clause doesn't mean what people say it means, but the if we're going to talk about what the Constitution says, then the United States has absolute right to withhold immigration status from anyone for any reason. According to the if Constitution, say, sure, but what is, what is constitutional uh, right. isn't necessarily about, moral. That's right. right, and so you brought up the Constitution. I'm responding with the No, no, I brought it up, and I'm just I'm saying there's, there's a lot in the Constitution right. to, to pick with, and a lot of his language, you know, he, he talks about putting America first, but he is not putting what I would call Americanism first, which is ultimately being concerned with respect for rights and phrasing everything in terms of respect for rights. With Ted Cruz, you would have an immigration policy that would be phrased a lot more directly in terms of the rights of the people and the need to protect us from threats. Not perfectly, obviously, because he's got some you know, other issues. Well, you on and I, you and I both agree what the word right means, right? It means that a person has the moral sanction to perform an action without permission. 
That's what a right means. You can do, I can call you on the phone and talk to you uh, or if you want. You know, we both have a right to do mm-hmm. without asking anybody's permission. Either immigrants, potential immigrants, foreigners, either foreigners have a right to come here or they don't have a right to come here. And if they have a right to come here, then there is no screening. There are no border checkpoints. There are no passports. There are no anything. They just, they just have a right to come the same way I have a right in Virginia to go to Maryland or West Virginia or fly out and see you in California. That's what a right is. So they do not have, you do not believe because you believe in some screening, that they have a right to come here. I don't think your own Brooke believes, although he's never been cornered on this, that they have a right to come here. So we're not talking about rights. Because if we were, uh, Harry Binswanger is perfectly consistent on this, by the way. He doesn't believe in borders. He doesn't believe in checkpoints. He doesn't believe in passports. He wants, he wants the United States and Mexico and Canada and Syria and every, he wants every country in the world just between uh, to be like Virginia and Maryland. Anybody can go anywhere for any reason. He at least is consistent. He's wrong, but he's consistent. But you and I don't believe people have a right to come here. We yeah, believe but that I there mean, are certain conditions and we're arguing about the conditions. We're just right, arguing but, about but, the but it's but it's only it's only premised on the right of self defense of the country that you can stop people at the borders. It's the right of self defense that I believe is behind that. And, and as you say, at any given time, there is, you know, a potential risk, you know, from somewhere in the world, what you said, 10 years that we weren't at war or whatever. Um, So this is, this is something that you would have in, in place as a matter of course, to be able to make sure. And even when you're not at war, there's certain threats to United States that maybe don't amount to that. Like you were saying, the criminal drug gangs or whatever, but this is all yeah. on the premise we, of it's, – it's on self-defense. It's on the premise of self-defense. Right. That's right. Now, so so, so I don't know that you're violating – I don't know that you're violating the rights of someone else if you subject them to screening only for purposes of self-defense. A right, right? is uh, like, action without permission. They have to ask permission. So you're, you're changing the word right to mean, you know – ask permission and get it kind of on a default basis. So I, 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 you know, I think we really have to be clear about our terms. I, I think uh, one of the reasons why both your own and you get, I, there's no excuse for abuse, of course, and, and I definitely do not condone any abuse, but get pushback, say, get intellectual pushback is because I think there is this unclear, um, this unclear terminology that is being used. And when we say, well, you're basically an open borders person, uh, even though you uh, agree with, you know, some screening and some restrictions, um, I think it all comes down to the burden of proof issue. And and that's why I brought it up. That's why I called in today. And I said my piece, and I'll let you go because you'll never get through the rest of the speech if I argue with you all all the uh, It is is true, Ed. It is true, Ed. Uh, thank, thank you for calling, I, and yeah, I guess we're going to keep no having this discussion. Okay, uh, take care. So let's take a look, yeah, because it is, what, 40 after the hour. Let's take a look at what Trump actually says in this speech. He has a 10-point plan that he will talk about. You probably won't be surprised to learn that number one on his list, by the way, I'm actually flipping through 
the pages of the speech. You print it out. It's like 28 pages or so. So before you ever get to number one, I don't know, you're on like page eight or something out of 28 before you ever get there. Of course, number one is the wall. And he thinks he can have a impenetrable, physical, tall, power, beautiful power. Why is he called power? It should be powerful or something. I don't know. Tall, power, beautiful. Uh, southern border wall. He's going to have the best technology above and below ground sensors, et cetera, et cetera. You're supposed to be so excited about it. Um, Mexico is going to pay for it. They're going to work with him. He says, I believe it. I believe it. Have faith in him. Uh, number two, end catch and release. So if you catch them and they're here illegally, he's going to deport them. Number three, Zero tolerance for criminal aliens. And he goes on about that for pages because, and I do think that our current administration has been lax on this. Uh, There are some criminal aliens who have probably should have been deported and weren't, but he talks about the various problems. He talks about, uh, you know, particular examples of people, uh, certain laws that he want to pass, Kate's law and other the Davis-Oliver bill, et cetera, to try to address the particular problems that have arisen because of criminal aliens allowed to stay here. And this is when he made the joke about, let's go ahead and deport her because she has taken criminal illegal action. Uh, She has evaded justice. Maybe she should be deported. Uh, There's going to be 5,000 more Border Patrol agents. There's going to be more ICE. Uh, deportation officers, tripled the number of ICE deportation officers, all to help this, this idea that you are going to deport the criminals. Uh, You know, throughout, there's a whole lot of appeals to authority. He talks about, you know, the Border Patrol agents have given him their endorsement, and, you know, he's spoken to these people and those people, and so therefore you should listen to him. And a lot of appeal to authority, a lot of, you know, calls for you to take him on faith because he has certain beliefs in his mind. That's the methodology that he uses here. Number four, block funding for sanctuary cities. Yeah, if cities are, you know, giving safe harbor to people who are here illegally, it makes sense that you would not want to fund them. Number five, cancel the unconstitutional executive orders, enforce all immigration laws. That should not be anything, you know, really of note at all, but I guess today it is because we've got these unconstitutional executive orders and Obama persists in using whatever discretion he can to continue with the, you know, effectively what is his amnesty regardless of Supreme Court striking it down, et cetera. Uh, Throughout the speech, of course, there's all these little appeals to vote for him and he talks about his stand on other issues, but he, he, he stays on topic pretty well. No one will be immune or exempt from enforcement. I mean, that that is how it should be, but it it surely hasn't been that way. Number six, suspend the issuance of visas to any place where adequate screening cannot occur. And again, time of war where we've got these places where we cannot adequately screen out members of ISIS who are going to come here and commit horrible atrocities in our country. I would say that in a time of war, were entitled to do that. He talks about extreme vetting and he gives a couple of regions, Syria and Libya as examples. Um, 
And then he talks about what we, you know, what we could do instead. He says, for the price of resettling one refugee in the United States, 12 could be resettled in a safe zone in their home region. Uh, I mean, first of all, I don't think we should be paying to resettle refugees here in the United States. It's insane. Um, It's not our job to resettle refugees here in the United States. In certain refugee populations, you might say, okay, we're going to let some of them in. We can screen and do whatever if we think we can handle it. But otherwise, uh, no, we don't have to sacrifice ourselves to this. But then he says, look, you could, you know, resettle 12 in a safe zone and that he is in favor of spending the money to resettle the 12 in the safe. How is it our obligation to resettle refugees in a safe zone? That's the altruist in Trump speaking there, you know, because he's he's so compassionate and so nice. Right. So he says, we'll build safe zones. He says, I think that's something that all of us want to see. And then this is where right after he's talking about this issue of extreme vetting. Again, this is number six, where you're not going to issue these visas. He says, we're going to have an ideological certification to make sure that those we are admitting to our country share our values and love our people. An ideological certification. You're going to be judged whether you can come into this country, whether your ideas are up, up to snuff of whoever the political leadership is at the time. So, I mean, maybe, you know, Trump's going to say, okay, you have to be in favor of spending money for healthcare, right? You can't let anybody fall through the cracks and all that stuff. What, what a mess of an ideological test would be an ideological test created by a Trump administration for reasons that I talk about at my blog. When I have a response to Ed Maslish on the issue of ideological screening, you can see why I disagree. In essence, I think people need to be judged whether they're coming in here according to actions, not according to ideology. And if you've got a self-defense reason to keep them out, you can, but it would be based on actions, not on mere ideas in their head. Um, okay. Yeah. So this is again, all of, all of number six. Uh, He says, you know, if we have the right people doing all of the vetting and everything else, very few will slip through the cracks, et cetera. But again, he's talking about ideological screening. Yeah, if we do adequate screening, very few would slip through the cracks. Our law enforcement could handle whatever happens. But I disagree on screening on ideological grounds. Number seven, we're going to ensure that other countries take their people back when we order them deported. And yeah, uh, you know, th- this idea that we have people who come here and they wreak havoc and they're not going to take them back. He says he wants to use pressure to make sure that they do take them back. I don't think that is a bad thing. Again, assuming that somebody we're entitled to deport, not a problem. Um, number eight, we're going to have biometric entry exit visa tracking system, which is something that we need desperately he says a biometric entry exit visa tracking system. So I guess biometric entry exit for foreigners, but not for United States. And then the question would be, is this something that's actually necessary to defend the security of the American people? We'd have to discuss that. But to me, it's it's a tremendous privacy right violation Uh, or not privacy, right? But, you know, liberty Right, this idea that the government is actually taking your biometric data uh, simply for you coming into, as a condition of you coming into the country. 
I don't see a country as the equivalent of a private piece of private property. You know, if you, if you, for example, you know, you're going to go work at a new company and they say, okay, well, if you're going to come work at our company, you know, our, our company, you have to give us your eye retinal eye scan and your thumbprint or whatever. Um, you know, if, if, if that's a condition of getting the job, then okay, I see that. I would think that that's fine, but otherwise, you know, I don't know that government should be collecting this unless there is a, you know, a definite reason for it. Um, now, visa expiration dates—they're going to enforce them as well. That's another thing. Um, and then he talks about number nine: we're going to turn off the jobs and benefits magnet. Benefits magnet, of course, all of us are in favor of turning off a benefits magnet. We shouldn't have people come here and expect that they're just going to be so-called wards of the state, live off of our tax dollars when they come here. But the issue of jobs, you know, he talks about uh, that immigration law exists to protect all aspects of American life. This phraseology is dangerous. It's this idea that your, you know, the whole purpose of immigration policy is to somehow protect culture, right? And I know a lot of people believe that somehow that's an, entitled, but you know, again, I don't see a country as the equivalent of a private country club and other things like that. But a lot of people, you know, you know the way that I look at it in some ways too. There's a lot of people with their immigration policy. They want to get the equivalent of a really nice view, right? So suppose like you buy a piece of property and it happens to have a really nice view. However, there is a piece of property right next to your property that you don't own that maybe is up for sale or whatever. And if somebody builds on that piece of property, it's going to destroy your nice view, right? What some people want is they want to put restrictions on whether that person can build on their property because it's going to destroy their nice view. So you have your view of whatever you like your American culture to be static and everything else. And you've decided that you want to restrict the actions of other people in order to preserve whatever that is. You want to preserve your nice view at other people's expense. And what I'm saying is, you know, again, you don't, you don't have a, a right to do that. Um, there's other people who want to hire these people. There's other people who want to do business with them if they want to. And then you're going to prevent them for reasons that are purely matters of ideas in their head, not a physical risk that they pose. I, I don't think that that's something that government should be doing. So, you know, again, this is the principle we're working with. And people could say, okay, well, then, you know, if you're for any screening, you don't believe in the rights and we, we can have that discussion. But I think, no, people do have rights, but there are certain uh, necessities of self-defense that make border checks legitimate. But those border checks have to be consistent with that self-defense rationale. I mean, just like you would say, for example, there's, you know, in the law of self-defense in criminal law, you cannot use deadly force simply because somebody slapped you, right? Um, you can't say, oh, it was in self-defense, right? There's only certain things you can do in self-defense. So, 
there are things that you can do in self-defense when people are coming across a border if there is an objective threat to your country, which there is always potentially a threat of disease. There's always potentially a threat of criminal. Um, but those would require very kind of minimal, hopefully not very invasive screenings. Um, you know, but again, applying to certain situations like times of war and things like that, there's going to be more screening. And yeah, you might shift the burden of proof over to certain populations in a time of war. But the rationale is, is self-defense, and I don't think it's inconsistent with, re, you know, respecting the rights of people. So, okay. Uh, number 10, we're going to reform legal immigration to serve the best interests of America and its workers. Workers, He says, we're going to take care of our workers. And my question is, what about business owners, the people who create jobs? What about the interests of them? Uh, you know, you could hire one really good person, right? And that person could be so productive and so innovative that that person creates a whole bunch of other jobs. And what I see Trump doing here is he's just thinking, okay, well, it's workers, workers. And he believes that if you bring people in that that's going to lower wages. You can talk, you know, about whether the Wharton school was accurate in that recent report that we discussed a few weeks ago, but they say, look, the effect of immigration on wages in the United States has either been neutral or slightly positive. So, you know, there is a perception and there's a lot of people who are really hurting right now, as we see with that jobs report and everything else, but to blame it, on immigration per se. I don't, I don't think that that's right. So he says, you know, we've got to have a policy, a system that serves our needs, not the needs of others. Again, it's a discussion of needs. It's not a discussion of rights. America first, serve our needs. He's not discussing rights. Uh, choose immigrants based on merit. Now I know, you know, you should choose employees based on merit. You should be allowed to choose employees based on merit but you know at what point you know how, how low is someone's IQ My, maybe just give them an IQ test right you know when they come in the country too and then you say okay if their IQ is too low you're not going to let them in regardless I, I don't know that I mean you know again I, I don't agree with that I'm just throwing it out there as something that, that gets into very dangerous waters you have people who have rights and you have people in our country who have the right to bring in and contract with, hire, invite to their homes, et cetera, uh, other people. And, you know, unless, unless there's some sort of a self-defense rationale, I don't see using government to keep those people out. Um, and, you know, and again, consistent with my view, there would be a lot of screening, particularly in a time of war. And, you know, a lot of the problems that have happened under the Obama administration, of course, I would agree. You don't have a sanctuary city that chooses not to enforce laws. You don't have, you know, the allowing of criminals to stay here. You don't refrain from putting pressure on the other countries to take back their criminals, all of this kind of stuff. But those are the 10. Um, that's what he says he's going to do. I don't see how the wall is going to end up being impenetrable, but I guess it's a good talking point. Now, what do we have here in the in the chat room? Uh, Jay says, yeah, biometrics are ridiculous. If we can ascertain that you aren't a threat to others' freedom, that is all that we can do. Yeah. And, you know, again, 
do we have reason to think that certain populations who want to come in the United States right now are potentially at war with us? If so, it might be very difficult to assess whether somebody is a threat to their freedom. And sometimes in, in that sort of more blanket screening that you would do during a time of war, you will end up keeping out someone who is innocent. Uh, your own had talked recently about, you know, maybe there's an Arab who's been influenced by virtue of selfishness. Maybe that person still calls himself Muslim, but they've been influenced by virtue of selfishness. And your own would say, isn't it tragic if you don't let that person in? I agree. It is tragic if you don't let that person in, but sometimes a proper immigration policy during a time of war might necessitate that you keep that person out because you cannot adequately screen that person. Uh, Tim says that New Zealand has a strict standard for immigration. You have to provide value on a 200-point scale to be admitted. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it does. But do you think that that's actually what a country should be doing or not? You know, what it, what exists out there or what you could do consistent with our Constitution and things like that is one issue. And then the other is, what do you think that it would be? Uh, Rick Perry was talking about the wall being a digital wall. <laughs> the the worst that you could think of is, um, you know, those fences, those electronic fences that you have for for dogs and stuff that actually electrocute you if you go across. But of course, in order for those to operate, you have to be wearing the the collar or whatever. That's what happens with the uh, but the dogs. A digital wall sounds like it could be scary, like it could hurt you without you necessarily being aware that you cross it or is it just going to sense when people come across and then you'll get intercepted. That's still a lot. I bet a lot of things could happen during that as well. I don't know that digital walls would be a great idea. We'd have to talk about the the technology. Um, John in the chat room says, if a person is ideologically certified and tracked biometrically, who the hell would come here if subjected to that? Yeah. Yeah. Trump says in his speech, he's in favor of ideological certification, of keeping people out based solely on ideas in their mind, not a showing that they pose a risk. And that is something that I disagree with. And I think if you're going to have government taking action, using force to keep someone out, because that's how it's going to end up being. They're just saying, no, we're not going to let you walk across the border, right? They would use force to keep you out. It's got to be based on a you know, a self-defense rationale and you don't have a self-defense rationale just because people are walking around with ideas in their head, unfortunately. Uh, well, unfortunately, I don't I wouldn't even say unfortunately. That's, that's, that's the way that it is. Um, I want to say unfortunately, cause I want to be nice to my opponents, but some of my opponents aren't nice to me. So why should I be nice to them? Um, okay. So in the meantime, Right. Trump gives his immigration speech and he goes all in one direction, not talking about rights. He's talking about the needs of the American people. Uh, he's talking about some things that I would agree with extreme vetting with respect to certain countries from whom, you know, dangerous people are, are coming and all that stuff. But then other things where he wants to keep people out solely on the grounds of jobs, et cetera. Um, in the meantime. Right. So there's Trump on the one hand. On the other hand, here we have our current State Department saying that it will exceed 10,000 Syrian refugees. This is a story from Washington Examiner. I think I have Rob Abira to thank for it. The Obama administration will exceed the target goal of 10,000 Syrian refugees resettled in the United States this fiscal year. It may take in closer to 12,000. 
This was published on the 29th of August. It says, we will meet the 10,000 figure today, and I would fully expect that you will see additional Syrian refugees admitted into the United States between now and the end of the fiscal year. How many more? Couldn't predict, um, but it might be 2,000 per month. Obama's refugee plan sparks fears on Capitol Hill and among voters that Islamic State terrorists would be able to sneak into the country posing as refugees. Hmm, you think so? Says, but Kirby insisted that the refugees have gone through the most stringent vetting of any class of refugees in the world. Okay, that might not be saying much, right? And maybe even if you go through the most stringent vetting when there's very little information, that still might not be enough. Um, you know, this, this comparison stuff, oh, it's the most stringent vetting. Okay, that doesn't mean it's adequate. So Kirby also emphasized that the refugee resettlement isn't the main tactic of the Obama administration of addressing the crisis in Syria. The uh, United States focused on resettling the, quote, most vulnerable refugees, not the best option. We're equally as dedicated to our efforts to end the civil war so that the people don't have to flee, et cetera, as if all of this is our job and our duty, right? So, you know, we, you know, we should not be spending resources resettling it is not our job our duty to resettle all these people but on the other hand you don't have to go to another extreme and say for example you're going to keep out 100 percent of all muslims you know this that is one prong of the policy of, of trump that i somewhat agree with right which is the issue of needing to do extreme vetting in a time of war um Okay, so that is Trump and immigration, and let's shift over to Hillary because we're over the top of the hour, and we need to talk about what's been going on with her. Earlier this week, there was a Time magazine article saying that the FBI had recovered 30 Hillary Clinton emails that involved the Benghazi attack. And let me turn off any sound that's going to pop up from pop-up ads and such like that. The State Department says about 30 emails that may be related to the 2012 attack on the U.S. compounds in Benghazi, Libya, are among the thousands of Hillary Clinton emails recovered during the FBI's recently closed investigation into her use of a private server. Government lawyers told Judge Mehta on Tuesday that an undetermined number of the emails among the 30 were not included, not included, in the 55,000 pages previously provided by Clinton. State Department's lawyer said it would need until the end of September to review the emails and redact potentially classified information before they are released. Now, this was published earlier this week. As I understand it, Meta told the State Department that it had one week to tell him why it would need until the end of September to review and redact 30 emails, it's ridiculous, and get back to him. So I'm going to be interested to hear what happens with that. And now having the spinning rainbow of death on the Washington Examiner page. Oh, no, that was time. That was time. Spinning rainbow of death on the time page is pretty sad. Let me get out of here and get back. Okay, well get back over to the blog. There's a lot going on with these Hillary Clinton emails today, and this is something you should be scared about. If you want a little bit of a flashback on Benghazi and the potential dereliction of duty of which Hillary Clinton is guilty, 
with respect to Benghazi. You can look at the little flashback story from January. Report U.S. rescue team was on its way to Benghazi but was turned back, told to stand down. Check out that link at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. It's going to be interesting to see what is in these emails, maybe information about that stand-down order, right? In the meantime, New York Times reporting yesterday, emails raise new questions about Clinton Foundation ties to State Department. Right, so this email scandal is raising two huge issues. First of all, Hillary Clinton did not do her job with respect to the safekeeping of classified information, information that is necessary to protect the security, the lives and security of American citizens, right? So that, first of all, that major dereliction of duty. The second thing is that the emails that are coming out now from this whole private server thing are showing that she may have done some dirty dealings when she was at the State Department that had to do with her connections to the Clinton Foundation. So there's this whole cronyism issue that is rearing its ugly head in addition to her not doing her job of protecting the interests of the American people. Again, New York Times published yesterday, they say a top aide to Hillary Clinton at the State Department agreed to try to obtain a special diplomatic passport for an advisor to former President Bill Clinton in 2009, according to emails released Thursday raising new questions about whether people tied to the Clinton Foundation received special access at the department. I think what is clear between this story and some of the earlier stories is, yes, they received special access. Some of the people you know, who are arguing on behalf of Hillary Clinton would say, well, they didn't always get what they asked for, but that doesn't matter. They still had access to request what they wanted in a way that you and I would not have simply because they were donors to the Clinton Foundation, and that is dirty as anything. Request by the advisor, Douglas Band, who started one arm of the Clinton's charitable foundation was unusual, and the State Department never issued the passport. Only department employees and others with diplomatic status are eligible for the special passports, which help envoys facilitate travel, officials said. So he wanted special perks that he was not entitled to because he was not a State Department employee. Mrs. Clinton's presidential campaign said that there was nothing untoward about the request and it related to an emergency trip that Mr. Clinton took to North Korea in 2009 to negotiate the release of two American journalists. See, so it was for the good of the country, so everything's okay, right? Mrs. Clinton has long denied that donors had any special influence at the State Department. The exchange about the passport between Mr. Band and Huma Abedin, was, uh, who was then a you know, top State Department aide to Mrs. Clinton, was included in a set of more than 500 pages of emails made public by a Judicial Watch conservative legal group that sued for their release. Quote, need to get me Justy and J.D. Dip passports, Mr. Band wrote to Abedin on July 27, 2009, referring to passports for himself and two other aides to Mr. Clinton. Quote, we had them years ago, but they lapsed and we didn't bother getting them, Mr. Ban wrote. Abedin mailed back six minutes later to say, okay, we'll figure it out. She should know that unless that person's an employee, that they're not entitled to these. A person with knowledge of this issue who spoke on the condition of anonymity said, 
that the three men were arranging to travel with Mr. Clinton to Pyongyang uh, less than a week later for the former president's secret negotiations. Mr. Clinton already had a diplomatic passport as a former president. Okay, fine. He's entitled to it. And, of course, Ms. Clinton, what's her response? They're accusing Judicial Watch of misrepresenting the episode, right? This is all just a right-wing witch hunt. But, you know, again, if it's all just a right-wing witch hunt, why is it that now you've got Time, you've got New York Times, a lot of the mainstream media is reporting the release of these emails, and it is raising some of the questionable issues that are in this email. You know, it's not necessarily coming out against her. It's not saying that they're going to, uh, you know, withdraw an endorsement. I'm sure, you know, they're still very pro-Clinton, anti-Trump. But they feel like they have to cover their bases, right? Because if something really horrible comes out, they want to say, yeah, yeah, we were reporting on that. Speaking of which, something that we may want to dig into more, and this was just published earlier today, so I have not had a chance to go through all of this, but it says FBI files, this is Fox News, FBI files show Clinton claiming ignorance on classification. That's the current way that they draw the headline. Um, They put links to the full documents that the FBI has released. What have they released? They have released summaries of their investigation into the Clinton matter, but you should realize that these summaries are heavily redacted. So for example, when they talk about in one place, you know, I was just scanning through a little bit. When they talk about in one place, who had access to the servers or who had email addresses, you know, in the server or whatever, they talk about Huma Abedin and then somebody else. There's like some other aide whose name is being systematically whited out from these documents. So it must be very interesting, whoever this other aide, this other person is, who had the emails. It's something that they don't want us to know for some reason. Um, The files show, right, you know, remember Clinton always said, well, she just had the one device and everything. Files show that the FBI could not obtain 13 13 Clinton mobile devices that may have been used to send emails from her personal email address, in addition to two iPads. They talk about that there had been five different iPads, and this is another part that I had scanned through a little bit. There had been five different iPads that were used to send and receive email from this private email server. So, um, you know, when they talk about things like, well, you know, Apple came and installed the server in their basement, but then, um, you know, Apple, nobody from Apple confirmed that they actually did and all all this kind of stuff. One of the things that's being passed around on Twitter now, I think um, James Woods, the actor, was sending it around as well. Hillary Clinton told investigators when asked what the C marking meant before a paragraph and email marked confidential, that she did not know and could only speculate it was referencing paragraphs marked in alphabetical order, but apparently the C was confidential material. The FBI documents note, uh, document notes that the email was in fact marked classified at the confidential level and was, when asked about different classification types like top secret, Clinton went on to say that she, quote, 
did not pay attention to the level of classified information and took all classified information seriously, end quote. She took it seriously. What does it mean, first of all, to take it seriously? And, you know, does, does that mean that it's still going to be trumped, haha, pun not intended, by her concerns for convenience? Even if she takes it seriously, well, she takes it seriously, but she doesn't want to be inconvenienced. How do those concerns weigh? And if indeed our government has established levels of classified information and they think it's important that certain information be treat, treated certain ways, who is she to disregard the various levels and you know treat all of it exactly the same? Obviously, they do this for a reason. Comey had said that, you know, that Fox News continue with this. Comey had said during the congressional testimony, there were questions over whether Clinton was, quote, sophisticated enough to know at the time what a particular classified marking signified. Apparently, she missed a, a certain briefing that would have told her this so that she could be, quote, sophisticated enough. I guess she wasn't sophisticated enough to attend the briefings that she was supposed to attend. And yet we are supposed to trust this woman to protect us as president of the United States, as commander-in-chief, and she couldn't even be bothered to learn what the various levels of classification are, what they mean, what her duty is with respect to the treatment of the data at that different uh, level. Yeah, 13 devices, 13. John Kenny in the chat room says there's a story going around where the Saudis ordered the stand down. It's going to be interesting when these emails come out you know again we're waiting for the state department to respond to the meta order that says you know look why can't you why can't you get through this why can't you um you know sooner than the end of september turn over 30 emails and the, and the contents in it so clinton's going around she's still running for president she's still as far as i know leading in the polls and there's more and more questions about her mishandling of classified information when she should have definitely known better and taken more care. You know, extreme carelessness when you say, I don't even care about different levels when that's what the government uses and presumably they use it for a reason. Horribly irresponsible at the, at the very least. In the meantime, the Guccifer hacker has been sentenced to over four years in prison, 52 months, the Marcel Lazar, the hacker better known as Guccifer, was sentenced in Virginia federal court Thursday to 52 months in prison. He pled guilty and made a charges relating to hacking a variety of political figures and celebrities. He targeted email accounts and websites belonging to Hillary Clinton confident Sidney Blumenthal, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, and former President George W. Bush's sister, Dorothy Bush Koch. He also targeted sportscaster Jim Nance and the Sex and City author Candace Bushnell, an interesting array of people. Um, don't confuse him with Guccifer 2.0. That's the hacker or hackers who have leaked the documents from the DNC. This is somebody different. Uh, Lazar is a Romanian national. He used emails obtained through hacking to feed online conspiracy theories concerning the Illuminati. But yeah, he gets over four years in prison and Clinton, who has been shown to be careless and mishandle information, not even a prosecution. I wonder if that's going to change. 
Fiona says, Clinton has been in government for how many years and is ignorant to the classification levels? Yeah, not only ignorant, but willfully ignorant. She says she disregards them. She thinks she's okay if she just treats them all, quote, seriously. And what does it mean to treat them seriously? That is one of the vaguest words in the world. I really hope that something comes to them. But, you know, as we watch over the next few days, you're going to probably have to watch on social media and you know, also the alternative media to see what information comes out of this report. I've actually got a chunk of it uh, on the desktop in front of me. I was looking through it. You know, they say um, Clinton's immediate aides to include Mills, Abedin, Jacobs, Sullivan, and blank, whoever this blank is, told the FBI they were unaware of the existence of the private server until after Clinton's tenure at state or when it became public knowledge um, and then you know in the one of the footnotes according to blank part of his job at state was to maintain and support the infrastructure for the unclassified and secret uh, networks for the secretariat but yeah there's um, god there's a whole lot of um, you know redactions and, and things here that seem like they would be interesting to know um, so you take a look at these. Like I said, Fox News has put them out there. I don't know that it's going to be anything that, you know, we'll, we'll probably get mad about it, but will anything be done about it? That's the thing that's truly frightening today. I don't know. I mean, you know, would Ayn Rand have written this sort of character into Atlas Shrugged? Somebody who could get away with scandal after scandal after scandal and still be leading in the polls in the presidential election. I Mm. Jay says, I'm fi- I find it funny that we're discussing blank outs on Atlas Shrug Day, right? Disinformation, yeah, there is there's a lot of disinformation out there as well. Fiona is saying it's it is it's truly it is truly frightening. And yeah, it does seem like it's worse than anything that you would have had in Atlas Shrug. Now let's go back over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and see what we've got. On our little agenda next. Yeah, so Hillary and all of the scandals. Stay tuned to that. Here's something. um, I think you just have to laugh at things like this, you know. Diversity in education and inclusion is something that we've heard about for a long time. This is a National Review article headline. Cornell Dean candidates plan to work with, quote, all students on inclusion. Upsets the student diversity chief. The student diversity chief is upset because one of the candidates for dean has a plan to work with, quote, all students on inclusion. So why would a diversity chief be against working with all students on inclusion? The subhead that they put here is pretty funny. His his inclusion is too inclusive. (laughs) It says in an open forum at Cornell University on Friday, a dean of students candidate stressed that he would be a dean for, quote, all students leading a student diversity officer to express concern that this approach might oppress marginalized groups. Controversy began with a candidate who is a higher education administrator and first-generation American named Vijay Pandekar. I guess he could be Indian. I'm not sure. He started explaining that he would be a dean of all students 
that he would focus on making campus more inclusive and that his efforts to make campus more inclusive would involve talking to everyone. He says, if I say, quote, the dean's focus area is diversity and inclusion, the unspoken thought in many people's minds is, oh, so he's here for only the marginal students, he said, right? He says, so we have to undo that because that is a deeply problematic framework. He says, if we're going to fix this, it's going to be everyone's conversation, end quote. And National Review is saying 